We're going to look at verse 3. We kind of went through verse 2 on Sunday because the chapter break is in kind of an odd spot. So if you missed Sunday's message, I encourage you to listen online. And it starts out by saying, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And so uh, Paul wants to be cautious as a apostle, as a missionary, as a pastor, not to put a stumbling block before people, to be sensitive to consciences, uh, to not ever give any occasion to sin towards people. Uh, Of course, this is a principle, whether you're a pastor or whether you're not a pastor, whether you're a missionary or whether you're just a, a, you know, a, a church a Christian attendee or whatever, you know, we, we want to walk in these Christian um, ethics of, um, you know, being sensitive to our brothers and rejoicing in the liberty that God gives us, in the multiple liberties that are out there, uh, all of these different gray areas that there may be, but always being sensitive to conscience of the men around us. And even especially as uh, we're ministering the gospel to them, as we're ministering the word and ministering the truth. And so all throughout the word, we got Paul in Romans 14 saying, uh, we don't ever want to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Or in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11, because of your knowledge, should the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, obviously 1 Corinthians having a lot to say regarding liberties and how we would use them, obviously going on in the church in Corinth there, that was an issue. Uh, He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, just like Paul says in our text today. We give no offense in anything. He said it to 1 Corinthians, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, and kind of here's this circle it, you know, that they may be saved. Uh, And so in our liberties and in all that we do, we just resolve, Paul says, to not give any occasion to sin or to stumble. And just a good word for us, you know, um, we have many different liberties today in 2015 uh, than uh, they did back in 2000, or what was it? (laughs) I think it was the year I graduated, 2000. Um, (laughs) Yes, I graduated that year. Uh, You know, to them, there were issues regarding um, circumcision. You know, there were issues regarding um, eating meat that had been offered to idols, you know. And especially as they're ministering in these pagan societies, people would get saved out of that. And then they'd have these choice pieces of meat before them. And they would wonder their conscience. And there's no offense here, but Paul would just call someone who's, offended, you know, by something like this, the weaker brethren, you know, someone who has a a rugged, robust understanding of the word of God and of grace and of liberties and of freedoms and 
what that is. That's a piece of meat. That's not, an idol's nothing. It's a piece of gold. You know, no big deal. It's a, man, I like a steak. You know, bring it over here. No big deal. You know, uh, that would be the stronger brother, okay? Now, one's not better than the other. Um, and and uh, there's to be sensitivity and to um, prefer the weaker brother uh, and to, you know, to help them out. What was it in Romans 16? Bear with the scruples of the weak, you know. Um, and so same, same thing nowadays. You know, we have all sorts of different liberties, whether that's uh, smoking, you know, whether that's uh, consuming alcohol, things that are not forbidden in Scripture. Uh, there's things that are forbidden in Scripture that are black areas. Getting drunk, absolutely forbidden in Scripture. Being sensitive to the consciences around you, absolutely mandated in Scripture. Um, but, you know, we can't put a burden on people that the Word of God doesn't put on people, whether that's, whether that's not smoking, not drinking, um, watching a certain movie or listening to certain music, things like that. Uh, there are gray areas out there. We want to be governed by the word. We don't want to put yokes on people that the Lord doesn't put on us. Um, kind of speaking of that, uh, you might uh, get online and listen to these teachings from the past here, uh, kind of giving church positions on certain liberties, looking at Romans 14 as you would go back a couple years, look at 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 as you would go back a couple years. Um, interesting going through the holiday season and inviting young Christians and, and weak brothers to holiday parties. I had a, a new believer at our holiday party who had come out of drug abuse and, and um, alcohol abuse and uh, was totally fine if there had been wine there at our Thanksgiving feast. But we were like, man, we just don't even want to put any occasion to stumble. Like, we are so fine having a glass of water or a, um, you know, what do they call the little sparkling apple cider? Like, that is just as good, man. Like, that is great. You know, we are happy to, to just, you know, we love you. Love rules, you know. And, um, and then, you know, hearing of another instance of a, of a weak brother coming to a Thanksgiving feast and the host saying, absolutely not. This is my house. We will drink alcohol. And I don't care. That's a, you can leave. If you, you know, it just shows, you know, there's some, there's some immaturity in this individual not understanding the New Testament concept of, Man, I don't want to give any offense in anything that people might be saved. Uh, and so a couple years ago, we went through an issue in the church regarding alcohol. And so you might get on, you just type in the search bar, alcohol or beer or whatever, and just see where we come, the stance that we have in the church, that we can't forbid people to, to consume alcohol. Um, you know, that's, that alcohol is not the devil, um, but rather the devil takes things and twists it and sin twists things. And um, the misuse of things does not take away the proper use of things. And so, uh, while we may have the liberty to have a beer or have a glass of wine, there is that line that the scripture draws, though, that you certainly do not have a liberty to get drunk. You certainly do not have a liberty to stumble a brother. So in all things, we just, man, we default to, man, if this has any chances, I'm at Mazatlan or I'm at you know, Dylan's, or I, that someone could come and they could just be stumbled, you know? And I don't think stumble means, you know, um, oh goodness, you know, what's going on? That's not a stumble. Like, there are teachable moments. Uh, stumble means, oh my goodness, you know, Pastor Rory's having a beer right there, and so oh, I just have to, you know, I'm just going to go fall off the wagon or whatnot. And so we just want to be sensitive. And so, uh, you know, there was something born out of weeks of fasting and studying and talking and coming to the scriptures coming to church history 
And so we would encourage you guys to uh, listen online. Maybe you're new to the church and maybe you wonder where, where we stand. I encourage you to listen to kind of the whole, looking at the whole of the Word of God uh, regarding that subject. Um, Calvary Chapel Corvallis recently did, I think it was a two-week series called Puff or Pass uh, regarding um, you know, their position. Uh, or what, and I think it was cool to come down to what a biblical position of smoking marijuana or eating marijuana, or you know, putting a drop of uh, the THC. Is it THC? Who would know that? Um, <laughs> oh, kidding! <laughs> I'm totally joking. With it. Uh, you know, putting, you know, having that somehow. And you know what was incredible? They did. They had a doctor come and speak of the medical aspects of it. They had a boys and girls club person who'd put on this whole thing uh, regarding what the implications were for society of the legalization of marijuana. Um, you know, all of these wise, wise counselors, and Lindsay had listened to this, and she said, you know what, there was so much wisdom, and wisdom, and wisdom, and, and such wisdom that could be used to forbid alcohol, but when it comes down to it, you know, we got to say, but okay, show me what the word says, not just wisdom, what's the word telling me, and then it was really neat to see Pastor Rob come with the scripture and a biblical perspective on the lack of sobriety of mind that instantly marijuana where it takes you. And especially when you get, get down into the drops of the THC in the candies and the brownies and the, you know, the e-cigarettes or whatnot, how it just blows your brain up and instantly uh, makes you drunk, essentially, in the mind. Hi. Uh, and so uh, interesting things as we, you know, this is just where we're at as a culture and in the world and we're going through life and we're seeing these and it's an issue that we're going to have come into our church. Uh, and just how do we, we just always want to have this. Beware whenever you hear yourself say, well, I think, blah, blah, blah. Because then you got to say, I just want you to know that. That's just what I think. Okay, it's just, you know, that's, a, that's, that's my preference. That's my conviction. Here's what the word of God says on this. So maybe you would find that interesting to listen to uh, these doctors and community outreach specialists and uh, all the way down to Pastor Rob speak on the subject of... Uh, marijuana and and it may end up being something we're led to do um you know in the future as well so all that to be said man whatever it is we we don't want to give offense in our ministry um i love how chad chad taught for me i think it was first corinthians eight uh years ago and he titled his sermon the idol of my rights and we just don't want our rights to ever be what trumps love and trumps grace and mercy to people. Uh, and he goes on to say here in our text tonight, so that our ministry may not be blamed, so that no one may find fault with our ministry. Now, remember that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, who there are a group of dudes over there that are just bad-mouthing Paul and trying to lead these people away from Paul as an authority in their life. Um, they're saying he's wishy-washy, he's double-minded, uh, he's unfaithful. He doesn't love him. And so Paul, from time to time, we're going to see him kind of backing up himself. And then we'll see him kind of back off a little bit like, I don't need to commend myself, but you're making me. He's going to say in chapter 12, I think it is. But you're the one doing this. I've got to defend. I'm your father in the faith, man. Uh, and so he doesn't want their ministry to have any faults there. And so he's kind of bringing this, uh, and look how we were so trying not to stumble you. And then in verse 4, uh, he says, In all things we commend ourselves as ministers 
of God. And so he's going to list, uh, I forgot to take an actual count of it, but it's 20-some things here, I think, uh, that prove that he's a bona fide minister or an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so there are things that he can bring forth in his letter of recommendation for himself or his references um, to demonstrate that he really is a servant of the Lord, a minister. And uh, he tells them back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, um, when there's a little bit of a rift between sect- of sectarianism, between I'm of Paul, oh, I'm of Apollos, oh, I'm of Peter, well, I'm just of Jesus, you know. And he says, you know what, let a man consider all of us servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And it's required of us that we be found faithful. And so he's going to give us a list of things that he is um, faithful in. First of all, he is um, a minister. And Romans 14 uh, tells us that it kind of goes back to that idea of liberty. um, And that if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're not walking in love. Don't destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And don't let your good be spoken of as evil. And then, it, you know, and then it goes on in verse 18 to say, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So one check you know, in just being a bona fide minister is that he's considerate of you know, the, the consciences of the people that he's ministering to. Uh, and in each one of these things, I just felt the Lord prompt me later on in my studies today, hey, don't forget, Rory, to show the Christ-centered word. Don't forget, Rory, to show that I'm really the hero here, not Paul. Paul's going to do a list of recommendations, but Paul's only doing those things because Jesus did it first, all right? And so Jesus is the true bondservant. He's the true minister. Uh, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so let's start the list here of all the ways that that Paul's a bona fide minister. Uh, First of all, in much patience. So this is uh, verse 4, I think. No, no, this is verse 3. We're still in verse, no, we're in 4. Problem of teaching from a tablet sometimes. Um, So in much patience or endurance. Ministers of God need the Spirit of God to work in them patient endurance to be able to see that work of theirs make it to the end. And I just know that when I was hired on, I was telling this story to our elders meeting this week and elder candidates and guys that are being raised up um, and just encouraging them to kind of put a commitment to, you know, their calling. Um, And I just remember being hired at Calvary Corvallis and on the day I was hired, um, they just said, Rory, we just ask two years from you. Just give us two years, you know. And I was like, of course, two years, man. I'm, I'm thinking long haul, guys, you know. And that would always been on my heart was to just be consistent, to be there for those kids. And I ended up being there almost eight years. And, um, but I remember in my youth pastor time um, how we would do camps with all these other churches, even Calvary chapels. And I just remember uh, youth pastors, you know, they'd be there for six months and be gone and five months and gone, and, you know. And, and sometimes that's the case when you can't, pay them. Um, But I just remember thinking, man, I just, man, I don't want to be flaky. I don't want to be someone that's a flash in the pan. I want to be, 
I want to have endurance. I want to have patience in this ministry. Whether I see a revival the first day and, you know, or whether we got to work for it. Um, there's the story of, uh, gosh, I can't remember. Maybe one of you remember the missionary's name, but I want to say Dr. Livingston, but um, that uh, he ministered his whole life to a group of indigenous tribesmen and no one ever got saved. And like he died and the next guy came in and took his place and like within a month there was like a revival. The whole entire village got saved, you know. And, uh, but I always admire and that story is always told as an example of patient endurance in the ministry. I'm not a flash in the pan. And people were accusing Paul of being that. He wanted them to know that's not me. Um, good picture of Jesus who was patiently enduring. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that he endured the cross. He endured. He was patient through painful times and seasons. Paul goes on to say, in tribulation. So as an apostle going through affliction and distress and trouble, Paul's life shows that the ministry life can be and will be painful. Couldn't help but be studying today and just be thinking of you, the Wednesday night crowd coming out, just believing that the Lord is using the second Corinthians time to equip you. This is, in a sense, a bit of a school of ministry period for you guys, um, you know, to be learning these things, to be, to be gleaning from Paul's experience, that uh, as an apostle, I've got tribulations to back up uh, how valid my ministry is. Not only does it endure and is it patient, but it's gone through a whole lot of trouble. And um, Paul was told in Acts chapter 20, there was a prophecy even later on in his ministry that the Holy Spirit had testified in every city that chains and tribulations had awaited him. That was something he got to look forward to. And for those of you guys here, it's not that much different for you. Um, if you're going to live the life of a New Testament Christian and servant of the Lord, um, you know, we may not see too many chains in our day, but we may end up seeing it. Um, but the tribulations and troubles, they are going to be there. But Paul says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, but this I do, I want to finish the race with joy. It speaks to that endurance, doesn't it? Um, and I want to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, he tells the Thessalonians, don't let anyone be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. And just, you know, as we look back in 10 years, <laughs> you know, at this church, we'll be like, you know, uh, man, we, don't be shaken. We remember we went through 2 Corinthians. We know, we've known for years that we've been appointed to trouble and to tribulation. Um, interesting that Paul tells Timothy in his final letter, his final epistle, be watchful, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So fulfilling your ministry, evangelism, evangelism, ministry, um, uh, it ties into enduring affliction. Uh, tying it back to Jesus, Jesus was exceedingly troubled and afflicted for us. He says in John 12, in the Garden of Gethsemane, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. 
So Jesus, you know, this is just one of many afflicted times that he went through, but there in the garden, my soul is exceedingly troubled. Paul said that his needs were an example of being in the ministry, that he had pressure and necessity and distress. Inevitably, it came into his life as he was traveling, a circuit preacher, if you will, across uh, Asia. And in ministry, we are constantly coming upon occasion where needs and necessity arise. And what does that do? It causes us to turn to the Lord and to say, I trust you, Lord. We need you for this, Lord. If we didn't have needs, we'd get self-reliant, wouldn't we? I mean, even this week, you might remember a month ago, I got the quote on the airline ticket and the travel agent said, good news, $937. I was like, woo, it's under 1000 Yeah, incredible. Uh, but by the time we finally got it stuck in there, it was about 300 bucks more. And so hard to send that text out to the Nepal trip and team and be like, oh, guys, you know, we just got word back, you know, that it's going to be uh, this much more. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And uh, already we've had people say, hey, I want to cover this need. I want to cover this need. I want to cover this need in the body. And so it just made us move towards prayer. And then the Lord's been working it out anyways. And so uh, in the needs that we have, um, it just causes us to be strong in his might. Um, Paul says later on in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians that um, when I was present with you and in need, he went on to say, what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And he would talk a little bit about his need. He would say, I was weary, I was working, I was sleepless, I was hungry and thirsty, I was cold and naked. So we see a little bit of the needs that Paul had. Um, But then he would also say, my hands provided for my necessity. Um, Look at Philippians 4.11. Paul is in chains writing to the church in Philippi. And kind of a title for Philippians is Joy in Chains. And here, especially in chapter 4, you see it. But he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned that whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to be abounding and to suffer need. And so... He knew what it was like to suffer need, but so did Jesus. Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head. As Jesus says in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus knew. You know, Paul isn't some like, you know, well, he was a martyr, but, you know, he wasn't something that Jesus wasn't. You know, he he was needy, but he learned from his master what it was to be needy. So not only in needs, but in distresses or trouble, difficulty. We said a couple weeks ago in chapter 4, verse 8, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Um, And yet Jesus also was distressed for us. As it said in Luke 22, 44, a different Garden of Gethsemane account. And being in agony, agony. He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. One physician did a study on this, and he studied that 
The blood was from bursted capillaries. This is an actual medical term for it. I didn't write it down. But it's when the capillaries burst in deep times of stress and blood comes out of the sweat pores. Uh, and so um, Jesus knew what it was to be in distress. See you, Delina. Bye. Today, Lainey goes, Delina's going to get her kids from Awana. And today, Lainey goes, oh, Dad, when can I go to Awana? Not smoke marijuana. <laughs> she was getting Awana and marijuana confused. And so we had a chuckle. Can't smoke Awana. Um, but you can go there and learn Bible verses, kids. Okay. That was a little side note for y'all. A little marijuana joke. They're good every now and then. Okay, never mind. <clears throat> little Awana joke. Uh, next verse. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. And so first of all, in stripes or in whippings or scourgings. In chapter 11, Paul's going to go in depth into all the things that he suffered. But he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. So here he goes into, again, kind of defending his apostleship. And he says, in labors more abundant, we're going to kind of overlap some of these things because they're repeated. But listen to this. In stripes above measure. The first one I highlighted that and was kind of pondering. I was like, think of that. Getting whippings beyond measure or scourgings beyond measure. And then he tells us the measure. In verse 24 of 2 Corinthians 11, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now in the law, the Jewish law was that in Deuteronomy, you were to have 39 whippings because that was considered mercy. That was called one from death. The Romans didn't have that rule. Uh, They would whip until they just want to decimate you. Uh, But the Jews had that law. So we don't know exactly how many times Jesus was whipped, but probably around 39 times. Here, um, Paul says, five different times I was scourged 39 times. You can only imagine the back of this um, minister. And so he's kind of saying, here's part of my letter of recommendation. Look at my back. And then he goes on to say, three times I was beaten with rods. And one time I was stoned. So maybe that'll just kind of put in perspective what real suffering is um, tonight. Suffering for the gospel. Jesus, of course, scourged for us. Pilate in Mark 15, 15, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to the crowd, but delivered Jesus to be crucified after he had scourged him. And then down in verse 19 of Mark 15, they, uh, they had taken him to the praetorium, which was essentially the Roman locker room, and they struck him on the head with a reed and spat at him. So Jesus was scourged for us. Paul says, in imprisonments. Now the, uh, the prophets, the prophets were imprisoned often. Uh, Jeremiah, for instance, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33.1 came to him a second time while he was shut up in the court of the prison. And so that's one instance of a prisoning, imprisoning, Jeremiah 33. Then in Jeremiah 37, 15, therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah and they struck him, put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they made that the prison. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells and Jeremiah, Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Jeremiah 38, 6, 
So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the dungeons there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank into the mire. Uh, so the, the, the prophets, then we have kind of who's considered the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, in Matthew 14. It says, Herod laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison. And then we have the apostles who in Acts 5, um, while preaching in the temple courts, they, had the, um, they were arrested and put in the common prison. Peter was arrested by Herod in Acts 12, but prayer was made for him constantly. And then Paul would be imprisoned as well. He would write of his own chains in Philippians 1, my chains are in Christ. And then he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor me his prisoner. Share with me in the sufferings of the gospel. And he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, I've suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. And so, mark of a minister is that they will go to prison in chains for the sake of the gospel. Um, and Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice when you're persecuted and when they revile you and speak evil of you, because that's how they treated the prophets of old. You know, you can rejoice because it means you're doing something right. Uh, you're speaking boldly, just as the prophets did. Um, the Hall of Faith speaks of all of the Old Testament um, heroes of the faith and even the new, um, that others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. And then to the church in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Smyrna, which is called the persecuted church, he tells this persecuted church, do not fear any of the things that you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown. And so, uh, being thrown into prison, the persecuted church, that could go even until today. The letter could be written to us today. And of course, Jesus was arrested to us in John 18, a detachment of troops, and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Paul says, I've been through tumults, or riots and rebellions. I don't know how many of you have been through a good riot or a good rebellion, but um, Paul certainly was familiar with it. Uh, he says back in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning our trouble that came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so we, we despaired even of life. And most believe that he's talking about the riot that happened in Ephesus. We had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead um, and does deliver us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I have a close friend, Josh Bailey, uh, who was a missionary to uh, Abuja, Nigeria, and he went up to, oh man, it was so many years ago, I can't remember the name of the town, but his um, girlfriend at the time, now his wife, uh, was going to school up in this town up north in Nigeria, and he went to visit right when, it was a riot, but really it was a war between the Muslims and the Christians 
took place. And he witnessed and um, just the machetes hacking at people. Someone um, hacked someone up in a car right in front of his face and then the car blew up and, and they had to run for their life and run. They ran to a, um, uh, a YWAM facility that had a wall around it and hid up in the tower in the YWAM base while the people were breaking the wall down to come in and kill everybody inside the YWAM base. Uh, and they got in, they were running around, and he was up in a tower with his video camera and his videotaping uh, everything going on. But he, uh, people in the YWAM base were slaughtered with machetes. And, uh, and so to have a friend, close Calvary Corvallis, was in my school of ministry class with me who has been in a tumult uh, for the sake of Christ. Um, and, you know, it, it could happen as we continue to be outspoken about our faith as well. And, of course, many of those Christians weren't really Christians. They weren't representing Jesus. And, um, and that's often the case as well. Things get stirred up because of um, people who aren't, aren't representing Christ. Maybe you're on a crusade or something. Um, so there were riots that Paul went through in Lystra uh, after he healed a man. Uh, just an incredible account. Peter's, uh, Paul's preaching, and he sees a man over there in Lystra, and the man's crippled, and I think he's been crippled for you know, 20 years or something, and he looks at Paul, they, they fixed eyes, Ken, let's pre- you pretend you're the crippled guy, and uh, <laughs> they looked at each other, and it says, Paul saw that he had the faith to be healed, and I don't know, I can't recall, he looked over at him, and, and he just called out, rise up and walk, and the man rose up, and because everyone was astounded at this miracle, they thought that um, Paul and Barnabas were Greek gods. And so, um, or was it, yeah, Paul and Barnabas, yeah, that they were Greek gods. And so they began to go and uh, try to worship them and offer sacrifices to them. Um, and yet he preached to them. And we'll show that story in just a little bit. But, um, but because they told them, don't worship us, uh, then a riot started and they stoned them. Um, in Thessalonica, in Acts 17.5, the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who turned the world upside down and have come here too, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, Jesus. And then in verse 9, so when they'd taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there's another um, riot. Uh, We've studied recently the Corinth riot in Acts 18, uh, that um, Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. But then Galileo, the the governor, spoke just a word of reasoning to calm the riot. And so they took Sosthenes, the guy that caused the riot, out in the street and beat him up. Uh, And later on, he became a Christian. And so uh, it would actually write to Corinth with Paul. Um, So these are things that are pretty foreign to most of us, unless you've been in war or straight out of Compton, you know. Um, (laughs) This is is foreign to us. Uh, In Ephesus, in Acts 19... Verse 23, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. 
jumping down to verse 28. And when they'd heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. When Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. And then down in verse 32, some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they'd even come together. Kind of a humorous little part in the bit of the riot, like, ah, what are we here for? You know, and uh, I guess that happens in riots. But uh, in Jerusalem, in Acts 21, 27, when the seven days of his uh, worship there at the temple had almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Then down in verse 30, all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, a Roman garrison comes in, basically saves his life, just to paraphrase. Uh, And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Um, When the commander came near and took him, they commanded him to be bound with two chains. And then later on, um, when he'd reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. This is just multiple occasions, almost Every city that he would go into, just violent mob rioting tumults. And yet Jesus had experienced it. uh, What does it say? A disciple is not above his master. Uh, When the chief priest stirred up the crowd in in Mark 15, 11, so that they should rather release Barabbas to them, Pilate answered and said to them, when do you want me to, uh, what do you want them, what then do you want me to do with him? whom you called the king of the Jews. So they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So a riot crying out for Jesus' death, not to mention the multitudes thronging him and they would seek to kill him and he was able to find a way out uh, sneaking through the cracks in the crowd. Um, In labors, Paul says, in labors, and he'll say in chapter 11, in labors abundant. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I labored more abundantly than them all. In 1 Thessalonians, laboring day and night that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. So he was a guy that labored, not wanting to burden the church. And that was a mark of his ministry. Um, And Jesus labored. He was the one who was about the work of the Father. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then... John 19 says that he bearing his cross, laboring after being scourged under the cross, went out to a place of the skull, which is called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him. So labor marked the minister's life. In sleeplessness, or the King James Version says in watchings, um, Paul would say be vigilant in prayer or be open-eyed in prayer. And uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I am sleepless often. And he tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You know, reading this list of the marks of a true minister, of course, I'm like, oh, let's apply the life of Rory in here. And it's like, you know, um, man, I so long to and aspire to 
be a Paul, you know, um, but see weaknesses in me, see failures in me, um, but want these faithful marks. And there, of course, are times uh, where we have sleepless nights, times of prayer, times where we can't sleep even if we wanted to, just have to pray. Hearing of Aaron a couple weeks ago, um, Aaron, man, if you ever know that Aaron is teaching, just know he's not sleeping that night and that he probably hasn't slept three nights before, and he's fasted all week. So just know that's what you're getting when Aaron comes to preach on a Sunday morning. Um, but, uh, but then to hear that you know, he knows of a gal dying of cancer in this community and woke up in the middle of the night and just went down to his basement and wept and wailed uh, almost all night for her. So just hearing of that, you know, um, just sleeplessness as ministers praying and, and crying out to the Lord. And, and many times that we've been at people's houses at the wee hours of the night, you know, just begging them and working through tragedy with them, working through failure with them. Uh, he says, uh, and by the way, um, Jesus was the one who watched and prayed instead of sleeping there in the Garden of Gethsemane as he went back. And what were the disciples doing? Their eyes were heavy. They were sleeping. Man, can't you stay awake for just a little bit with me? Jesus was the one that was watchful. Paul says, fastings are a mark of the true minister. Man, most often there's fasting going on in this church on Wednesdays. Uh, Wednesdays seem to be a great day where we just come to fast and join together and break the fast uh, after Wednesday night study. Um, fasting just marks this church all throughout. Shannon texted me the, uh, two days ago. She has a friend from India adopting out of India got there and was having problems with the adoption and was just in, and what did Shannon text me? I'm fasting right now. And you know, that is just something the Holy Spirit has so worked in our body in the last six years. Like it is, it used to be like, you'd never hear about fasting. And, and now it's, people are fasting all the time, all over the place for all these different reasons. And we give God glory for that. Um, and we have the open doors uh, of Nepal and the youth building right now that are, uh, born out of fasting, uh, having signed the lease just this last week for another three years in this building with the option to, to buy out in a year if the Lord opens up another building for us. But that was months of fasting and what is wisdom. And, and I've got it right here, you guys. Um, in fact, I was sitting here on Wednesday, hadn't received the lease back, and Gail brought it to me last Wednesday night. I've got our lease, and so praise God that was received well. And um, But... Uh, we're going to be putting out a schedule to be fasting for Nepal, for this Nepal trip where there's fasting every day leading up to Nepal. Uh, and then our week of fasting and prayer uh, is going to be about a week before we leave for Nepal uh, so that we are just bathing our trip in prayer and just everything about it in fasting. And fasting for the youth in our community. We've got some neat directions going on with the youth ministry right now. Um, so fasting for the youth in our elders meeting this week, we said let's fast for revival in the youth in our church and in this town. Um, fasting for the Haiti trip, uh, Dr. Nathan Reed and farmer Adam Barney and <laughs> steel building guy Jesse Martinez. They all need titles. Um, going in March to Haiti, we'll fast for that. But Fasting is a regular part of this church, praise God, and that is a mark of a minister. And guess who fasted first? Guess who fasted 40 days and 40 nights? That would be Jesus in Matthew 4. Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, the Holy Spirit, sincere love. So not only 
purity, uh, moral purity and virtue and character, but also can be translated sincerity. Um, Paul says, just look how justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you. Um, For those young ministers, Paul tells Timothy, be an example in purity. Don't let people despise your youth, but be an example in purity. Um, In your ministry to women in the church, uh, whether it's to older women as mothers or younger women as sisters, with all purity and just striving for purity in our ministry here at the church, just as Paul did, having policies that we never give women rides in cars by ourselves as ministers. We never counsel with our, the door shut and the blinds closed. And, you know, if you're ever a gal that needs counseling, um, you know, we're going to have my faithful office assistant, Gail, there at the, at the table in the front, you know, just so that there's, there's always, there's never even a blame or a hint or anything like that. Um, there, there's purity there. And uh, Jesus, of course, live in the life of the pure, tempted in all points as we are, Hebrews 4.15 says, yet without sin. And our Sunday service in chapter 5, verse 21, says that he knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. Uh, By knowledge, and so just knowledge, not only wisdom, but actually knowing Jesus um, he would tell the Corinthians in, chap- in 1 Corinthians 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what? You don't got to be a Bible scholar, seminary graduate to minister for the Lord. Determine to know Jesus. That is what matters. As you know Jesus, Colossians tells us that Jesus, and here's why, here, how he's the hero here, he's the treasure of knowledge. Uh, Colossians 2, 3 in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so if you know Jesus, you might be uneducated, just as the apostles were an untrained men, but when they see you, they'll see that you've been with Jesus. Jesus would say that one greater than Solomon is here. In wisdom and knowledge, Jesus has him beat. By long suffering, um, so even more than endurance, but a loving patience. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, that love suffers long. Galatians tells us a fruit of the Spirit is love, and love is long-suffering. So notice the link there, love suffering long. Colossians 3 says we're to put on tender mercies and long-suffering. Paul tells Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine very important to follow Paul's doctrine. His manner of life, very important to follow Paul's manner of life. But also, it's interesting, my long-suffering and my perseverance. Like, I, I wouldn't think that those are things you'd put in your final letter to somebody. Like, yeah, doctrine, my manner of life. But remember how patient I was? Remember how I endured? Those are marks of the ministry. Jesus, of course, long-suffering, as Peter tells us, He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His ministry was by the Holy Spirit, not in fancy words, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Just as Jesus, who when he was baptized, the dove came upon him, and Matthew and Luke both say that the Holy Spirit had anointed him for ministry at that point, anointed by the Spirit for power. By sincere love. 
So Paul's ministry was marked by love. Even out of much affliction and heart, he would write letters of discipline. He says it would be through many tears so that you would know the love I have so abundantly. And he says, you don't think I love you? God knows I love you. And then he goes on to say to Peter saying, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And Paul will say in our letter, chapter 12, even though the more abundantly I love, the less love I get back. Sometimes that's the life of a minister. Jesus wins because he loved his disciples to the end, John 13, 1 says. Verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So the ministry was marked by the word of God, by the word of God. One of our values at our church, the word, the word of truth. And Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesians 1.13, after you heard the word of truth, you believed. So that was the message that he would give them to cause them to believe. Uh, He tells Timothy to always rightly divide the word of truth. Now, Jesus is the word of truth. He's not the actual logos written word, but he is what the word of truth represents. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And uh, in Revelation, well, actually, if you go down, because the next thing that marks uh, the ministry, oh, it's not the next thing, so put a pin in that. Um, The next thing was the power of God, and it says in the book of Acts 11.21, the hand of the Lord was with them. Speaks of the power of the Lord upon their life. You know, speaking into Johnny's life and Jason's life this week, and Jeremy and, and Adam, as there are all these guys that we just feel the Lord leading into the uh, position of an elder in this church, and just speaking to them this week and saying, we see the hand of the Lord upon your life, guys. We see power in your ministry. We see power in your life. Um, uh, he goes on to say, uh, my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, Jesus' life was just the same. Um, He would cast out the spirits, the demons, with a word, it says, and he would heal all who were sick. So his ministry, marked by power, marked by the armor of righteousness. As Paul says, let us put on the armor of light as ministers. Of course, he goes into Ephesians 6, the whole armor that you guys all know. You probably haven't memorized. You, You have little costumes at home to wear to... Teach it to your children. So you got the armor thing down, right? But I like that. Let us put on the armor of light, Romans 13 says, as we cast off the works of darkness. Now, Jesus is a specific weapon in this armory. He is the word of God. And in Revelation, when he's coming to conquer, it says he has written on his thigh the word of God. And what does he have coming out of his mouth? A sharp, double-edged sword, which Hebrews tells us the word of God is a sharp, double-edged sword. So Jesus is the substance of the sword of the Spirit. On the right hand and on the left. And so um, I don't really know what that means, honestly. (laughs) 
didn't have time to actually look it up. I wanted to look it up. But the interesting thing is, because there's only two other places in the Bible that talk about the right hand on the, and on the left. When children of Israel go through the Dead Sea and the waves are all the way up and they're up on the right and on the left, so you, know, you could probably glean something from that as the ministry is on the right hand and on the left. Um, Proverbs says, length of days is wisdom's right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. But notice the next verse says, by honor and dishonor. So on the right hand and on the left, and we know right hand speaks of what? Honor. When you sit at someone's right hand, and then you sit at someone's left hand, that's dishonor. And uh, interesting that Jesus speaks to people on his right hand in the end times, and he'll say, enter in to, to heaven, essentially, and he'll speak to those who are unfaithful on his left hand, and he'll say, uh, cast them into uh, darkness and cursing. Uh, verse 8, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. Uh, so Paul had people speak honor to them and dishonor. In fact, people wouldn't join the apostles even though they respected them highly, Acts 5 tells us. There were times of honor and there were times of dishonor. They would go through times where one minute they're going to worship Paul and Barnabas, and the next minute, they're killing him and, and maybe did kill him with stones. Um, and of course, the same thing uh, happened with Jesus. Some said that he was good. Others said that he deceives. By evil report and good report, that marks the ministry. You're going to have people speaking evil, have speak, people speaking, people speaking, just time to end this thing, and people speaking good things, good report. Um, and you know what? That is what exactly happened to Jesus. Uh, remember when the, the man was blind and he'd been healed in John 9? Uh, they, the people examined this blind guy to try to figure out what had really happened, if it was really a miracle. And so they called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know this man was a sinner. So speaking evil, an evil report about Jesus and he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. So evil report and good report. That marked the ministry of Jesus. As deceivers and yet true. Uh, Jesus was called a deceiver uh, during the resurrection account. Uh, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. And uh, kind of in the good report, evil report, there was a lot of complaining among the people in John 7 concerning Jesus. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives people. So evil report, good report. And that happens even in uh, bona fide ministries. You get the evil reports. Verse 9, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed. Um, Paul was called a babbler. No one knew him in Athens, in Athesis, in Athens. What does this babbler have to say, right? He was unknown, and then he'd go places where he was well-known. It says, from Jerusalem round about to Illyricum, we have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Well-known and unknown. Jesus was unknown by some, well-known by others. In fact, in Acts 25, uh, Festus writes Felix, and writes, we had some questions about Paul, about their, uh, they had some questions about Paul, about their own religion, and listen to this, about a certain Jesus 
who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So that wasn't very well known, and yet he's writing about Jesus. As dying and behold, we live. We get a little bit of the the J-curve there, remember, from a couple weeks ago. Um, But Jesus, of course, was dead and yet lived. As chastened and yet not killed. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says that Jesus was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so, as suffering, even Jesus was chastened, if you will. Um, He learned that obedience through his suffering. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, there's always times we're going to be hurting, we're going to weep with those who weep, and yet we're going to be rejoicing with those who rejoice. Um, Even when we have sorrowful times, we're told to take joy in those times because God is doing something, and so we can glory and rejoice in our tribulations. As poor, and this is one thing I like, this is where we're closing, to quote John Corson, if you've tuned out, tune in, okay? He says, as poor yet making many rich. Now, it doesn't say as poor yet rich. I mean, that's kind of been the vibe so far of, of every contrast, you know? Here he's like, as poor, yeah, we're poor, but we're making people rich. We're not getting rich. We're making people rich. As 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So Jesus became poor so that we through him might become rich. It's a work of the ministry. And having nothing and yet possessing all things. Jesus had no home or place to lay his head, yet he had all authority in heaven and earth to send out disciples. Just closing with these last couple verses. O Corinthians! Exclamation point. We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. And as we um, are just closing, these final verses I feel we're going to use on Sunday to lead into um, this next passage about forsaking idolatry. And so you can be praying this week, uh, whatever good word might be, just calling the body in and together, calling people to be involved. Oh, Prineville this Sunday. We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. We've been ministers ministers speaking truth and sincerity, not peddling the word of God, and we have a large heart for you, Prineville. Verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Or the NIV, it says, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Verse 13, now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Kristen, why don't you go ahead and grab your guitar and you can close us in uh, song. And while you just set your things aside, let me read this in the Phillips, these last couple of verses. Oh, our dear friends in Corinth, we are hiding nothing from you and our hearts are absolutely open to you. Any stiffness between us must be on your side. For we assure you there is none on ours. Do reward me. I talk to you as though I were talking to my own children with the same complete candor. And so why don't we stand and we'll just close with a song, but Jesus, the true minister, with a record of commendation, 
He's the true bondservant who endured the cross, who was exceedingly troubled for us, who had nowhere to lay his head. He was distressed for us, scourged for us, arrested for us, experienced the riots. He was the one who was always about the labor of the Father, the one who watched and prayed instead of sleeping. He fasted. He was pure. He was the treasure of knowledge. He was long-suffering so that all should come to repentance. He's been anointed for ministry. He loved his disciples to the end. He's the word of truth, the power of God, the substance of the sword of the Spirit. He's at the right hand of the Father. He speaks to those at his right hand and his left hand. He's well spoken of and wickedly spoken of. He's called a deceiver, yet being truth. He's still unknown by some, yet well known by others. He was dead, dying once for all, but now lives. He suffered being killed, learning obedience. He became poor so that many might become rich. He had no home or place to lay his head, yet having all authority in heaven and earth. His heart is wide open to you tonight. If there's any rigidity between you and him tonight, it is on your side. You are being held back by your own affections tonight. And so let's just during this last song, just let the Lord search our heart, see if there's any rival thrones, any affections that are pulling us away from all out, reckless abandon, serving Him, whether it's a hobby or a person or a place or a thing. Let's let the Lord topple those thrones down, those affections down, so that we can Meet him at that large heart that he has for us. Go ahead.